Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. But we go out of our way to make the video look good. So, for example, if you apply grain to a live photo, we'll actually make the grain jitter in the video so it looks natural. It looks like video grain. It doesn't look like photo grain. So we have two different algorithms, um, and we make sure we, we do the right thing there. Because if you just have, like, a flat <laughs> grain, it just looks like someone slapped a photo on a video. Welcome back to another episode of Apple Pros. In this episode, we continue this deep dive into the photography world with the co-founder of Darkroom. Darkroom is a unique photo editing tool as it can be used for video color grading and can also non-destructively edit live photos. It also has some features like masking that are super hard to implement if you aren't Adobe or a company of that size. They also treat the iPad great with several iPad-only features. A quick note that I am starting to record some of these live over on YouTube at youtube.com slash at iPadProsPodcast. So you can check the video version there or embedded on the episode page at iPadPros.net. Those interviews will just be the raw, unedited discussion. Next, for those curious, I do plan to do a iPad OS 16-focused episode in the future, but I'm pushing that off until the final release of 16.2, I think the extra time for stage manager and polishing up will be important to have a fuller discussion on the ramifications of this new way of working and feel the beta coverage should be good enough until we get to that final release of 16.2, which will add back external monitor support to M1 iPads and M2 iPads, which that has been wonderful and can't wait for that final release. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do that in two places. First off, over at patreon.com slash iPadPros, or by subscribing in Apple Podcasts. My sincere appreciation and thanks to everyone that supports the podcast. Even a dollar a month on Patreon goes a long, long way and is greatly appreciated. With that, here's my interview all about Darkroom. Enjoy. Welcome to Podcast Matched. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited for the chat because I've been getting... Big into photography ever since the iPhone uh, 14 Pro came out. Uh, I've never mm. had a Pro phone, so I've never had Pro Raw before. And at the same, same welcome time, welcome to the party. Was... <laughs> What's that? I said, welcome to the party. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, my brother gifted me for baby shower a fancy Sony mirrorless camera, um, which very has nice and a lot of fun digging into that whole world as well. So, yeah, I have one too. That's the same combo I have. I have a Sony camera and the uh, iPhone 14 Pro. So we're in the same uh, photography league here. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so first off, I just want to dive into uh, what your relationship is to the iPad. So my relationship to the iPad, I mean, it's 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 interesting because the iPad um, is a device that I always uh, have wanted to love when I'm at home and have like really struggled with finding a a home for it in my like daily computing life. Yeah. Because I'm either I'm either on my big XDR display on my desk mm-hmm. or I'm on my phone on the go and I don't really like in my current life stage with a baby, I don't ha- I don't have the time and space to sit on a couch with an iPad and like spend time computing on that. But um where it has found a home is travel. Yeah. Um because when I'm traveling I don't have my big display, uh, but I'm still taking lots of photos. Um, and it's really, really pleasant to edit photos on a big 12.9 inch display. Um, beautiful colors. You can really see the details in a photo. You can really get in the pixel peep. Um, and, um, the nice thing about it is, um, what I typically do is I go offline. Uh, I go into airplane mode on my iPad mm-hmm. and I have a terabyte of storage. Yeah. And what I'll do is I'll just dump my Sony SD card into my iPad and the reason airplane mode is important is because then iCloud doesn't offload yes, them yes. on me. So like when I have terrible <laughs> connection, I'm somewhere mm-hmm. like in the mountains, I still have my, my files and I, I do my calling, my flagging, my rejecting, my presets, uh, my editing as I go, which then makes it much less daunting to come home and actually like have a final collection of photos for, for that trip. And so um, the iPad has really become, has replaced my laptop for when I'm traveling. And when I'm traveling, I, it's the opposite of when I'm home. I don't have the space to sit on my computer and like open it up and like really get right. into it. So the iPad is actually better for that situation. Yeah. Um, so as far as day to day, it's it's kind of like taking the place as my travel companion. Yeah. And you've been on the 16 beta, obviously developing Darkroom. Uh, we haven't mentioned you're the co-founder and you're an engineer. So you're, you're kind of very much in to this app and making sure it improves. 
Uh, yeah. How have you found reference mode on that? X- Do you have an XDR iPad Pro, like an M1, or are you on an older model? Uh, no, no, I'm on XDR with like a M1 Max uh, MacBook Pro. So that's that's been how I've been uh, working. Um, uh, and when you when you're referring to reference mode, you're talking about the external display support. Uh, no, on the that. so on the iPad, there's a new toggle you can turn on reference mode for the XDR screen on mm. the iPad, so it like calibrates it to to be more. So I have a, I have a, I have a, I have an admission. Yes, I have to admit something, which is. Um, as you know, you're on the beta, so you know we've been quite busy with yes. <laughs> uh, with a big release coming up, and we just had a release rec- like uh, um, five days ago um, for preset sharing. So we've been in a really heads down mode getting those releases done. So I actually haven't gotten a lot of chance to really live with the iPad. Oh, and good. In yep. fact, in fact, um, so we also have a Catalyst app. So we actually built the iPad app in 2018, mm-hmm. and we're running it on the Mac, and it's the same code base. Okay. Um, and what's interesting about the Mac, and I'll, I'll circle this back to the yeah. iPad, so I'll, you'll, you'll see why I'm talking mm-hmm. about the Mac when you ask me a question about the iPad in a second, which is uh, because they're using the same code base, um, things that the Mac app struggles with are things that the iPad app might also struggle with. And the reason I say might is because, um, for example, you can resize a window arbitrarily on the Mac, whereas you can't really do that on the iPad until Stage Manager. Right. But even then, like you have size classes and the iPad OS will blur the screen while resizing. Mm-hmm. And so what we've been doing, where our focus has been as far as improving the iPad, has been on improving the performance and stability and reliability of the system. Yeah. Um, and we're using the Mac as a stress test environment for the iPad. Oh, and so everything really that we do yeah. to improve the Mac app comes easily onto the iPad. Like, like, yeah. um, uh, will map to the iPad uh, version of Darkroom. Um, and so it's the equivalent of when you're trying to optimize the performance of something. You don't want to do it on a high-end device. You want to optimize the performance on the low-end device. Mm-hmm. And then the higher-end device will be able to reap all those rewards. Yeah. Um, you, but the Mac environment just exasperates any of the issues that we're struggling with on the iPadOS. Um, and so things like multi-window support, resizing, all of those things are getting much, much, much better even in the beta version that we're about to to launch uh, soon, um, and so we've been focused more on that, and that's what that's taken our attention away from what we typically do, which is the moment there's a new announcement at WWDC or a new yeah. Apple event, we drop everything and adopt it. <laughs> um, so you're just catching me in an off cycle yeah. of uh, of early adoption. <laughs> no, all good. So um, I first want to ask, what's your relationship to photography and photographs? Like, is this always been a passion of yours? Like, why darkroom for you? Yeah, so my my personal uh, relationship to photography started um, around around ten years ago, um, and uh, like the, the 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 not very exciting answer is I just you know I was I saw some friends posting some nice photos, um, and at the time I had my iPhone 4s, and I was just like, wow, those photos are really great, um, and uh, so I just got a camera because I wanted to make my photos look better. And the thing that hooked me with photography is that unlike videography you can put in a little bit of effort and have really excellent results just for like the, the payout mm-hmm. <laughs> ratio of effort to reward is really high with photography. Um, and that hooked me. And then I just kind of like fell in love with, um, um, you know, like I, I'm taking all these photos that look really great, but then they're kind of sitting on an SD card and I don't know what to do with them. And so I started getting into like uh, early Mac apps with the 10 years, 10 years old now. Camera bag was the app. That, I don't know if you've used a camera bag on Mac OS. It's one of those like indie uh, yeah. apps. It's not one of the main ones, but it really gave me an insight into um, editing and made me fall in love with playing around with colors and making a making a look. Um, and then I actually, at the time, I was working at Facebook, um, and uh, in 2013, I transferred internally from Facebook to Instagram, and I started working because of that passion for editing and photography. Um, so I, I transferred to Instagram, and uh, that's when I kind of got into mobile photography specifically. Um, and at the time, it, the community was much smaller, and the dark and Instagram as a com- as a company was also much smaller. Yeah. And so I was able to really meet a lot of the people who were um, trailblazers for mobile photography. Um, and the thing that they did that was um, insightful and early was taking mobile photography seriously and taking the iPhone and understanding and having a vision of what having a camera always with you in your pocket can do to photography beyond the megapixels and beyond the specs and beyond the glass and beyond the size and weight of everything. It's just you, we like photography because we want to tell stories and like you can't tell a story if you left your camera at home yeah. because it's too big and heavy. And so I think the people I was exposed to and the narratives I was exposed to really took mobile photography seriously. And if you remember in 2014 when we started, when I started working on Darkroom, um, 
there were a no tools. Lightroom for mobile didn't didn't exist, and then there were no tools at all for managing a library that was consistently growing. Um, and so that was my my relationship was uh, like my my relationship with photography started just kind of early on, just trying to make photos that look better for me and my friends hanging out. And you know, yeah. this was post college. We're going out. We're hanging out a lot, and I was the guy with the camera taking pictures. Uh, and my relationship to mobile photography started at, at Instagram and, um, the, tra- the way that transitioned to the darkroom was just the insight that as more and more people take mobile photography more and more seriously, more and more professionally, we need tools designed and built for the iPhone yeah. and for mobile edit photography. So the distinction for us is we, for us, mobile photography is not just on the capturing camera side. It's also, um, the editing and the management side. And that's why we have an iPad app and that's why we have a Mac app. Before Darkroom on the Mac, if you wanted to like access photos on um, on your iCloud photo library, you really only had the Photos app. Right. Um, like that's it. And so like <laughs> if you wanted to do management or anything, you had to either do what they allow you to do mm-hmm. or export them and then import them into a separate library. And yeah. that dual photo library is something, I mean, our entire like reason of being is... Um, we don't want you to import photos and export them and manage double storage, yeah. manage double libraries, have a really inefficient workflow. Um, and so any way we like iCloud photo library has in a way grown to be the heart and soul of mobile photo editing. And anytime mm-hmm. you have iCloud photo library, you should have darkroom. Uh, that's, that's our position. Yeah. <laughs> and so with the photo management, uh, like if you favorite something in darkroom, that's going to show up in the photos app. Uh, absolutely and vice versa yeah and i'm curious there is extra stuff you're within darkroom like flagging and rejecting is that metadata that goes anywhere outside of darkroom like that's not something that apple photos directly supports right so what we do is we um we currently actually use the photo so when you flag a photo in darkroom we add it to the flagged album in the darkroom folder Okay. And so you can actually view all the flagged photos outside of Darkroom. Oh. Same with gotcha. rejected photos. Yeah. That, okay. That's fine. Yeah. And those are the two big, I guess, management things within Darkroom? For now. For now. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, the thing to know about Darkroom that'll keep coming up in this conversation is that we're a very, very small, independent, and bootstrapped company. So as of this interview, we have uh, f- uh, f- uh, six engineers and one designer. And that's the whole, and, and like QA and customer support, that's the entire company. And so because of that, we have to really focus our effort and our resources on one thing at a time to be able to do it well, yeah. especially across all the image types and across all the platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as I mentioned before, we've been really working hard for the past few months on um, uh, preset sharing and uh, a couple of other updates that are going to come out yeah. uh, towards the end of the year. So you mentioned you had a Sony camera, something I'm curious about is my Sony camera uh, evidently does not have uh, raw support on the OS level, which is what you guys tap into. Um, how w- explain a bit on like camera support in that whole rigmarole? Because uh, yes, so it's it's a little yes. So um, here's this. Uh, I'm, I'm the reason I'm hemming and hawing is I'm trying to think of where to start explaining this. Yeah, <laughs> there's like a two minute answer and a ten minute answer. Um, I'll give you the ten to two minute yeah. version, and then we can we can talk more about it in detail if you if you if you want. Sure. But um, uh, Apple provides as part of the, the um, iOS SDK, Apple provides a set of technologies called Core Image, which um, a lot of app, most applications, not all of them, but most we use to do image processing. As part of Core Image, there's this CI raw filter, which is um, the technical name for the raw engine. And so this mm-hmm. is the component that opens a DNG, reads the sensor data, and interprets it into RGB values that we can then work with. Yeah, That transition process is camera-specific and uh, manufacturer-specific. And Apple is famous for only updating its software during major operating yes. system updates. And Apple is also famous for having um, a lot on its plate. And so, <laughs> and so we are dependent on them updating support for things like compressed RAW format. So I have a Sony A1, mm-hmm. which is the one of the latest uh, Sony cameras. And it does support iOS, uh, RAW. There is operating system support for that camera, yeah. but just not the compressed one. So you have to make sure oh. you're not shooting in compressed RAW. Interesting. And that's a, yeah. it's a big issue with Fuji cameras. Sony can now has compressed RAW. Um, so that's the that's the main thing you need to be wary of uh, in terms of your camera settings. And the reason, you know, that that's what limits us. Now, there are other 
companies and developers who have built their own raw engine. So the right. thing that goes from sensor data to RGB values. So I know like Lightroom has their own, Google has their own, which they use in Snapseed. Um, I believe there's a there's a raw power is the other one that I know raw power been, raw power yeah. is another one. So he so the main developer he built his own raw engine for specifically like Fuji raw files and I, right. I don't know um, whichever other ones. Um, then there's there, you know there's open source libraw that we can you know mm-hmm. you can integrate. But the problem is if you integrate that, then you're not using core image and like you anyway, can't use this both. is getting into the 15 minute version of the answer. Yeah, you you can't use both <laughs> Apple's technology and uh, a third. Party. You can, it but just, when you're not using Apple's one, then you have to like really not use uh, a lot of yeah, the rest it, of Apple's okay. stuff. Yeah, it's not a huge um, deal because I just I just import in Lightroom or Raw Power and send the DNG off to to Darkroom to actually touch play with it. Yeah, I mean like if our whole like I mentioned before, our whole thing is around workflow efficiency. And if you have to import and export from apps, then you're kind of like losing yeah. that, work, that beautiful <laughs> workflow. Um, so for me currently, and this is something we're working on, um, but it's not, it's not like, um, it's, it's a little ways away. It's probably a few months away before we start really like getting into it um, and to addressing that shortcoming of Darkroom. Yeah. Uh, because it's, because it's, because so much other work has to go before we actually yeah. enable that, you know? So we're, what we typically do is we lay ground groundwork and so you know big things come but we've been working on them for about a year in the past so that's the that's the issue you're having there right and as far as raw and pro raw and these dngs compare the jpegs like what what's can you explain like what kind of better control you as a developer can have for editing because all the same controls show up there they you're you just have to like explain a bit on on the the file format Uh, yeah 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 exactly and high efficiency raw versus jpeg right the main difference between raw and jpeg um that is useful for a photographer so like ignoring the technical details and the file formats and like the file size and stuff like that is uh from a photographer's perspective the raw file will have two big differences the first is it'll have a higher bit depth and i'll explain to you what that means Mm -hmm. and the second is it's not compressed and uh those are the main differences and it's also extended range um, yeah. So th- there's three main differences. So I'll, I'll explain all of them one by one. So the fact that it's not compressed is the biggest uh, difference. Um, so when you take a picture and you're capturing in JPEG, the camera itself is doing, conver- is doing a conversion from raw sensor data to a compressed JPEG file. And the reason you would want to do that is because it's a much smaller file. Yeah. And so if you're capturing lots and lots of photos, you're going to end up with much smaller uh, images. Now, the other thing is that conversion I mentioned before, where if you capture raw sensor data, those are not RGB values. That's sensor like um, voltage information. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't see it. It needs to be debayered. It needs to be sharpened. It needs to be processed. It needs to be interpreted, right? And in that interpretation process, there's also subjective decisions that need to be made around white balance, around um, tone mapping. Lots of lots of subjective editorial choices are being made on your behalf to produce a JPEG. And so what yeah. you tend to have is a, um, I, w- I don't want to say generic, but I want to say um, general purpose file at the mm-hmm. end of that. Like it's a file that will be the most appealing to the most number of people. And most people will actually be happy with the JPEG. Um, like, you know, yeah. especially if you if you have, uh, if you shoot Fuji, then they have the film simulation modes that will inform how that transition from RAW to JPEG will happen. And so you actually can influence some of the editorial choices being made mm-hmm. in that JPEG compression process. The problem is, if you want to make any changes afterwards while editing, then a lot of that information has been compressed and flattened out. And things that may look smooth perceptually to us mm-hmm. would not be smooth mathematically in the RGB values. And so if yeah. you then stretch two colors apart, rather than having a smooth gradation of values you would see a block and you would see just like a block of a single color and like flat edges. And those are JPEG compression artifacts. So as you're doing so like, like a selective color edit to make the greens pop, exactly. those would yep. not pop as well on the JPEG. The, the easiest place to see it is in a sky because the yeah. sky has like a lot of like a smooth gradation of similar blue value. So if you reduce the luminance and the blue channel in darkroom, for example, you'll see those artifacts come into play. If you increase contrast a lot, uh, you, you'll see, if you push shadows up too much, you'll see... JPEG artifacts. Um, raw photos won't have those artifacts in them because okay. each yeah. pixel is independent. Um, JPEG is a lossy compression algorithm. That's how you end up with smaller files. It takes similar colors and compresses them to the same one because our visual perception system can't tell the difference. Yeah. 
Okay. But when you stretch it, then that's not true anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the, that's the, the first, the first, uh, difference is, um, um, the, um, the compression. The second difference is the bit depth. And so JPEG is, has much fewer bits per, um, color than raw. Mm -hmm. Um, this is like a technical description, but all it means is, um, you have 256 ways of describing blue in RGB. You have much, much more in 16 bits. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like if you have two similar blues and you only have 256 ways of describing blue, those two blues that might be a little bit different would fall into the same bucket in JPEG okay. and in RAW they would be different. And so again, when you go into stretch them, not only have uh, not only is it uncompressed, <laughs> so not <laughs> only has it not been flattened for you, even if the colors are similar, you can still like find points in between two blues to differentiate. Mm. All of this long story technical short, long technical story short is it allows you more latitude when editing, so that you can push colors farther from where the RAW photo. Uh, the raw engine interpreted those colors originally. And so if you're someone like me who really likes pushing their photo, you would want to capture in raw. Right. If you're someone who typically is just like adjusting um, uh, colors subtly, then you don't need to capture in raw. You can save yourself the performance and the memory and yeah. just shoot in JPEG. Um, so that's that's the main that's okay. the main difference. One other thing is future proofing, right? And so right. Like, right now you might not be able to do a lot of things, but in five years you might be able to do a lot more of them. So you want to capture and save as much data as possible. So that in the future, you might be able to do more of it. And the only thing I would um, advise people against is becoming data hoarders. <laughs> so like, you might not need it now or in the future. And like, so like, th- you're paying a premium on storage, bandwidth and performance and memory mm-hmm. to process these raw files. So it's not a free, just let me gather more data for the sake of it. Right. Situation. Yeah. And uh, call call your photos. Just don't keep every little last one. Like some, yeah. I was looking through my photos I mean, from yeah. a couple of years ago. I got I, some blurry ones I was deleting. It's like, oh, wow. I kept a exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the areas we're actually thinking about. How how can we help people do that with less effort? Yeah. Right? Like, that's one of those situations. Like, keep your house clean. Right? Keep mm-hmm. your, clean up your room. It's like, if it's one thing I have to clean, it's easier to do that than if I let myself go for uh, two months. Yeah. <laughs> and it's easier Definitely. to just shove everything under in the corner. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the areas where um, in the future we want to work on helping go from a cluttered library into a curated one with a minimum amount of effort. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed your app has a connection with Halide and as does Halide, you can kind of shoot in Halide, hit a button, be editing in a dark room and there's a button in a dark room to jump over the Halide. What's your relationship there? I mean, we, we know uh, Sebastian and Ben on a personal level. Like we, we all <laughs> knew each other in, in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, we all like and respect each other. I actually worked with Sebastian at Apple like uh, 12 years ago. So, <laughs> so like we, are, we, have, we have a personal history that kind of helps establish like trust. Um, beyond that, we also kind of want to do the same thing in the mobile photography space. So I think our goals and ambitions and tastes are aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the vision and the mission of both companies is uh, is aligned, and that's what helps us say, okay, like we both want the same thing. We just are both independent bootstrap companies focused on different parts of the same workflow. So let's try to make that as optimized as possible. Um, so that's that's the that's the nature of that relationship. Okay, and something I I get a little confused about. When I capture a JPEG, uh, JPEG plus RAW in Halide, when I load that up in Darkroom, it, I can choose uh, by default to open the RAW or the JPEG. When I'm editing, is it applying the edits across both files? Like, uh, what's the like linking files between the the higher and the lower versions? How's it all work? Yeah, so the way the way to think about it is you have edits sitting on one space and you have like the active photo mm-hmm. in another space. And then you can choose whether the active photo is a raw version or the JPEG version, but the edits will stay the same. Okay. And so what we're doing is like we switch from JPEG to raw, then we just keep the edits but apply them to a different image. Okay. Um if you haven't made any adjustments, we allow you to switch instantly. Mm-hmm. If you've made any adjustments, we put up an alert to let you know, hey, by the way, like these edits might look different. <laughs> like be careful. Like don't expect everything to be the same. Um, especially since we offer exposure only for RAWs, but not for JPEG. So if you made a RAW, an exposure adjustment in the RAW, you go to JPEG, suddenly it looks different. Uh, um, yeah. And the reason, we, the reason we do that is because, um, again, we're mobile photography focused and it's really, really difficult to get a badly exposed photo. Like you have to really do work and enable settings yeah. to underexpose or expose a photo on an iPhone. Um, but we really want to have brightness. Um, so for raw, we have both, uh, but they use different curves and they're used for different purposes. Mm-hmm. And our, our thinking there is raw photo, raw photographers 
are choosing to enter a more complicated yes. <laughs> um, workflow. So we'll give them more options. But for JPEG photographers, we want to keep it as simple and accessible as possible. I see. Yeah. And uh, something I noticed is live photos are actually respected in your app. Every other photo editing app yeah. just strips out all Crazy, the data. Right? Uh, yeah. It's wild. It's, it's, it's amazing. Funny how that works. Yeah, it works. Uh, yeah. Is this, you guys also do video, like color grading, uh, kind of same tool set, but for videos was, it's kind of a side benefit, right? Yeah. Well, it's actually, we've supported live videos since 2017 and then we've only had the uh, video editing since 2020. Okay. Um, the, the thing that's, I mean, I, I understand why other companies don't do it. Um, it presents certain challenges. And so, these are these are things that you wouldn't know until you like actually develop software or really really pay attention. So we mm-hmm. tend to pay attention to details and of iCloud Photo Library that most photographers like most consumers wouldn't for a good reason. Yeah. And um, so uh, you know one example of that is if you add a frame to a photo in Darkroom, we include the frame in the video, which makes sense. Right. The problem is when you go to preview the live video in the Photos app, it zooms in the video. Yeah. And so it ends up like making the frame not really match what you had wanted to do. And mm-hmm. depending on the aspect ratio of the image in the frame, you might cut off like the video. Um, another thing is the resolution of the video is much lower than the resolution of the photo. Um, and so when you go to like play it back, um, it looks not as sharp, so it can look a little bit different. And the last problem is, um, especially with what we're what we've started doing recently in terms of image processing in Darkroom, uh, with things like clarity, with things of uh, some some upcoming releases working on, is um, the amount of analysis we have to do on a photo and the different domains that we have to work on mm-hmm. um, doesn't really work for video. So like video has compression artifacts, and like video has um, uh, um, like there are there are things that can happen within a frame that as long as they're happening in other frames, it looks smooth. Yeah. But if things are different from frame to frame, then it ruins your video. Right. Um, and so um, there are some things we can do for photos that we can't do over video. And so unfortunately, the two are started diverging a little okay. bit. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there's something so beautiful and powerful about a live video. And like, especially when yeah. you have people moving and acting and responding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we keep supporting it because we think it's really powerful and beautiful. Um, but I, I can see like another company making a different decision. We choose to focus on the um, uh, emotional aspect of live photos more than the technical fundamentals of it yeah um so we allow the photo and the video to look different because most times you're not really going to notice a difference right and if you do well but we go out of our way to make the video look good so for example if you apply grain to a live photo Mm -hmm. we'll actually make the grain jitter in the video video. so it looks natural it looks like video grain it doesn't look like photo grain so we have two different algorithms um and we make sure we we do the right thing there. That's really cool. Because if you just have like a flat gray, <laughs> right. like someone slapped the photo. Yeah. The video. And I really love um, the video portion where it is just a straight video because you're looping a video just simultaneously because you're not you're not editing a video like LumaFusion. You're color grading uh, basically. Is, is that the best term for it? And it's looping. Yeah, so absolutely. You're constantly seeing I mean, the changes. What, yeah. I I think it's 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 for to understand how we think about video editing in Darkroom is uh, it's it's best to think of like the understand the use case we're optimizing it for, um, and like everything starts for us from the fact that we're focused and optimized for mobile photographers and mobile videographers. And the reason we added video editing in Darkroom is because uh, the destination for a lot of these uh, photos is social media, and social media now like became story ever since stories became the dominant form of consumption on social media, people are mixing photos and videos. And so the reason we added support for video editing is because we wanted the videos that people share to match the photos that they're sharing. Mm. So if you're going out yeah. on a trip, you can sh- you can switch between seamlessly between videos and photos, and it still looks like part of a cohesive set. Um, and so like you think could copy video... the copying adjustments. You could do your edit, copy those same adjustments across all the things in that same kind of trip. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Um, now, one thing that's interesting is by supporting video and photo, we've gotten really deep into thinking about the video space and the tools for that professional videographers and video graders have, and how can we bring those to the video space and unlock those for videographers. So there's um, there's a lot more investment to do in the future for videography, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier with a small team, so we can focus on one or two things at a time. And uh, the list of what we want to do is a lot longer than the amount of time we have uh, in a given month to, to work on it. So we have to prioritize and, and choose what to work on first. Yeah. So with the adjustments that you can make, how how does your team kind of look at which ones to actually include? You mentioned exposure. It doesn't make sense for JPEGs. So it's include for RAW. Um, some apps, you can fade both blacks and whites kind of independently. Um, like, 
kind of what goes into what you decide to include versus not include? Um, so what we don't want to do is turn Darkroom into a cockpit where every feature is available all the time and you have a soup of buttons and sliders Yeah, and there's like 17 ways of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that isn't a tool for mobile photography. That's a tool yeah. for professionals in a studio environment. Um, and so that's every choice that we make as far as a new feature edition. Uh, there's, t- there's two components of it. Does this need to be in a tool designed for mobile photographers and mobile photography workflows? Mm-hmm. And the second is, if the answer is yes, how can we redesign it so that it feels native to a mobile environment? Yeah. Um, and I think some of our competitors will go from the opposite way. So they'll go, we want to build this on the desktop environment and we'll like shove this right. down into a mobile interface. Yeah. And then you end up with like floating panels on both sides and like mm-hmm. sliders coming up from the bottom and like menus inside of menus. And you're just like, I don't even know where I am or what I'm doing. It's powerful. Yeah. You can do everything in it. But yeah, I, I will tell you, my photos that I edit in Lightroom, I, I don't subscribe to. I did the trial just to see what it was all about. And you could, I edited the crap out of those things because you had so many more tools and my photos looked highly edited versus something like Darkroom. It looks more natural because like you, yep. you're not tempted to use all the crazy stuff. Yeah. And there's also, uh, so there's a second component of that, which, which I'm glad you mentioned because that's actually the second thing that we designed for and I'm optimized for explicitly, which is... Um, the limits of sliders and the range of adjustment that you can do, mm-hmm. we try to limit it so that um, you can't screw up your photo yeah. and then get it to a place where you're like, ah, I've like made four adjustments and now it looks terrible and like I don't know mm-hmm. why. Um, so we intentionally try to like limit the range. Like, again, this is a tool for mobile photographers. You're using your iPhone to capture photos. It's really, really difficult <laughs> to get a photo like way off in white balance. You actually don't have white balance control. Right. And so you don't need temperature controls that go from zero Kelvin to uh, like set like 10,000 Kelvin because then what ends up happening is um, when the range is too big, your finger is not a precision input device. And so then it becomes really difficult to get really fine adjustments using like a finger input. Um, And so when, you know, part of what is involved in building a tool, uh, building a photo editing tool is a lot. Every time you build a new slider, every time you build a new feature, you have a lot of uh, subjective decisions and usually these like sliders internally uh, abstract away like 10 knobs. <laughs> like how much of this uh, color channel do we include on this kind of photo? How deep do we want to go? Things like that. And we make uh, choices that ensure that your photo looks natural at the end of that. Yeah. Um, that's what we think mobile photographers want. And um, unless they tell us differently, that's what we'll continue to optimize. Yeah. So one slider I'm very curious about is at the very bottom on the iPad, you can select highlights or shadows and choose a color and change the amount. Um, yes. Can you explain what this exactly does? I, I've played around with it, and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing with that slider yet. Yeah, so that slider is doing split toning. Okay. So you're basically saying, I want my highlights to be red, and I want my shadows to be blue. So okay. the way to kind of like think about it is if you uh, make your photo black and white, mm-hmm. um, you can tone the bright parts of the photo in one color and the dark parts of the photo in a different color, okay. and they'll blend smoothly in between. <clears throat> um. It's actually one of the first tools we built in Darkroom, but it's also one of the tools that we're actually working on upgrading. Um, and so where we want to take this in the future, hopefully sooner rather than later, I, I don't want to like sign up for yeah. specific deadlines. Uh, but if you go on our feature suggestion board, we say that this is in development. So like, it's not a secret that yeah. we're working on it. Um, but um, the um, what we want to turn this into is a color grading tool. So similar to what you see in a video context, we have lift gamma and, and, and like all those like color wheels. Yeah. We want to turn it into one of those tools. Um, cause I think that's a much more declarative and like intentional way of doing it. Um, and that representation of like, here's a color wheel. And like, I want my highlights or my midtones or my shadows to be this color allows you to add side adjustments around luminance and saturation that I think can be really, really powerful for making presets, especially, and for like manipulating and shifting the colors, um, in a photo. So that's definitely something that we're working on, something we would like to do. Um, but to answer your direct question, split toning. Yeah. But like, <laughs> we're we're going to be migrating away from okay. that. Okay. I got you. Yeah. And then uh, one thing that I'd love to do in Darkroom that I, I do often in, in another photo editing app is a white vignette. Like it's a, um, is that yeah, something you've explored at, at all? Um, that is, that is something we've explored. Um, I think, where we're stuck on with that is um, indicative of the challenge of building Darkroom, which is um, 
what I think you want is uh, you want the ability to lens correct. You're taking a photo with a camera that adds a vignetting, and you want to like correct that vignetting. Is that correct, or is this um, more of a stylistic it's kind of like choice? During to, like, the, it's during the brighten. day. I got a cute little baby in front of me. I want like more of like <laughs> angelic kind of like surrounding the photo, just Glow. a little bit of light. You know, that's yeah, yeah. So, so for that use case, what we sometimes suggest to people to do is to use a radial mask and to just increase the brightness. Oh um, yeah. If you want to use it for very for stylistic reasons. Yeah. Um, because then you can control like the size, and, the and they're width, always the very subtle. Right? Like it's a ten or fifteen percent. Like it's nothing yep. too crazy. When it's, when now I here's it. here's the problem. It's like it's simple to add a vignette slider. Usually people want to add a vignette so you can focus on what's happening in the middle of a photo. Yeah, you just move the vignette and you're done. Right. Right. The problem with adding vignette on the other side is what people will typically other what people want when you want like wider vignette is to fix for a lens correction. Mm. And the problem is if that's what you want, you don't actually want vignette to go the other way. Yeah. What you want is lens profiles because each different lens will have a different amount of midpoint and a different amount of fall yeah. off and a different kind of like curvature that's specific to that lens. Um, and so that's why in Lightroom, it's under lens correction where you can like remove okay. that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, because because it, it reads the metadata of your photo and it has a database of like, okay, All for this specific lens, yeah. here's, yeah. And this, there's actually like, a, like an open source uh, database of transformations that define this mapping between a lens and a vignetting. So like we could add five sliders to vignette that control the, uh, <laughs> the roundness of it and the midpoint, but like that's going to appeal to so few people. And when you, what you really want is like a switch, like correct for this lens. Yeah. Like you want a lens correction switch. And so that's, that's, that's why it doesn't have it. And that's why we haven't gotten around I to gotcha. building it yet. Um, for the stylistic one, what we typically do is just a radial mask. And then, cause that, then you can choose, do you want to, do you want to change the shadows? Um, outside of this area do you want to change the whole overall yeah. brightness like do you want to do something different yeah and the masking is something i want to dive into because that's super impressive and not in many other apps i mean light your room has it it's a high-end like subscription app your app it's yeah. hard to build it took us a long time <laughs> so yeah um, yeah it, it it blew me away the other day uh using the subject vignette because it worked yeah perfectly in this raw photo it, it captured my new newborn and nothing else congratulations thank you and then i then realized i can invert that to get everything in the background because sometimes the foreground background thing doesn't exactly do what i want to do but that subject thing just i I don't know what it's is that tying into ios 16 at all or what is that doing no that's just a that's a machine learning model that's actually provided by ios okay Um, and so we run that we run that model to try to identify the contours of a subject um, and so the, the masking feature was our first foray into machine learning and artificial intelligence in Darkroom. And so we use it for two reasons now. You called out the first, which is subject uh, masking. Yeah. And the second one we use it for is depth estimation. So if you open a portrait photo in Darkroom, you can select the foreground, background, change the blur in the background, and you can select uh, any depth in between the foreground and the background and make adjustments yeah. that are depth specific. Uh, but what we actually do is we run any image, even if it's a big raw photo through this machine learning model to generate a depth map and allow you to edit the background or foreground, which is really useful if you want to do like exposure lighting adjustments in a mm-hmm. raw photo. It's really powerful to change where the lighting is coming from. It's, it's kind of magical. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the subject um, AI specifically is similar to the one that Apple uses for their like um, subject masking where you can pull a photo uh, pull a dog out yeah. of a of a photo and like copy paste it into something else. Mm-hmm. Just using a similar um, okay. mechanism. What's powerful is how we've integrated it into Darkroom into the workflow in a way that's easy to use and added support for all the different um, sliders and tools under that. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 where the kind of the magic comes from. That and then you you can duplicate, you can invert. So you know you can you can do all sorts of things with that. And, and then you can also add uh, luminance and color masks inside of that subject mask. So you can select everything but the person, and then select the bright parts of the photo, or the dark parts of the photo, or the blues. Something yeah, like that. so it's quite powerful. And uh, with the depth data, do you get? So the iPhone Pros have that LiDAR sensor, and at nighttime, they'll use that for depth. Do you get any additional data when that is used to capture, or is it just all kind of the same? We get... So if you capture in pro, in a portrait format, mm-hmm. we get lots of information. Yeah. So if you actually use... If you actually try Darkroom on a portrait photo, especially capture with a recent device, you'll see skin, teeth, glasses, hair, okay. um, and you can just 
go go crazy with it. So you can do a glasses um, mask. That's like a thing I could. Yeah. Oh wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, uh, it's really great for teeth whitening. So you can actually make a preset mm. where when you apply it, it whitens teeth if it's a portrait photo, which is like kind of blows my mind yeah. even sometimes when i do it i was like i can't believe we can do that <laughs> <laughs> and those are provided by the operating system so at capture time the ios is generating those masks for us and those are high quality masks especially the hair one it's beautiful yeah and then um uh it uses the lidar to capture a high fidelity depth map and so when you're using a portrait photo you're using all the the lidar and everything to get a really beautiful um uh, depth. So actually, if you use a front-facing photo and you take a lidar photo there, mm-hmm. and then you use the depth um, mask, and you move, if you if you move the depth slider back and forth, you can see just like it's getting the nose, it's getting the facial shape. I mean, it's, it's yeah. absolutely insane. Um, and so, if you capture a portrait photo, that photo is that information is generated using as much information as possible at capture time. If you open a regular JPEG or a raw photo, we generate that for you using a machine learning. Model. I see. Gotcha. And then. Some masks, I kind of struggle with how to do them, like like linear, like linear mask is one example. Like I'm making a line, like can you explain some of the masks that are less automatic in how to kind of, what, what use cases are best for these different uh, masks? Sure, yeah. So a linear mask quite simply allows you to specify a start point and an end point. Mm-hmm. And then the start point is full effect. And then the end point is no effect anymore. Okay. And then it does like a smooth fall off between those two points. Um, but it, it's a linear gradient, right? Yeah. Between those two points. So if you move them next to each other, it'll be a vertical um, um, mask. If you move them horizontally uh, on top of each other, it'll be a horizontal mask. And um, the main use case there is if you have a landscape photo, you can create a mask that's the sky. Yeah. Uh, you can create a mask that's the land. If you have a photo um, where you're looking at a bit of an angle, you might have a light fall off. If you have a building casting a shadow, uh, you might have a line that's in the shadow. So you can create a mask to capture those areas. Okay. Um, the radial mask is very similar, but instead of being a linear mm-hmm. gradient, it's a radial gradient. So you can say a circular region of the photo. Uh, I want to edit everything inside of that or outside of that if you invert it. Okay. So inverting a radial mask is, like you said, really powerful. Well, the same way you've inverted a subject mask, yeah. a lot of people would create a radial mask, invert it to create a vignette yeah. or a bright vignette. Um, and the use cases for that is if you want to like really focus in on a specific area of the photo and you want to say, I want to get just this person Mm-hmm. In the distance, you would use a radial mask on that person. Or if you have a sky that's in the top right photo, you might want to create a radial mask around that sun and sunset photo to yeah. capture that specific region of the image. Um, so each mask is trying to break down the photo in a different way. Um, then we have uh, the eight smart masks. So hair, teeth, skin, glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for portrait photos. Then we have the depth masks, um, including uh, foreground, background, and the depth range. And then the uh, subject mask um, is yeah. also available for every photo. So that's the it's the full okay. list. It's yeah. like 12 kind of. It's yeah. a lot, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, you mentioned that was kind of your first venture into machine learning. There's other yeah. areas you're curious about investing? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're actually like uh, investing a lot of infrastructure right now to try to create um, um, a foundation. The future of Darkroom is going to be super, super heavy on machine learning. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've, I don't know if you follow machine learning excitement that's happening on Twitter right now, but it's everything everyone's <laughs> talking about, and yes. you can see all the different ways that we might want to do that. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about all of those, uh, but we're also trying to think outside of the editing interface. We're trying to think into the management aspect of Darkroom yeah. as well, and how, and I mentioned before, one of the things we want to do is we want to take you from 400 photos you took on a big day of hiking or a big day of traveling, walking around a city, and get you down to the 20 best photos, or how do I go from... I have 75,000 photos in my iCloud photo <laughs> library, but really like I only need half as much of that because yes. so many of them are duplicates. So how do I clean up that space? I'm paying for it. I'm paying bandwidth. I'm, it's like limiting me. It's, uh, um, so how do, I, how do I organize and call really efficiently? Um, so we're, we're thinking of all the different ways that we can um, introduce machine learning to Darkroom within and outside of the editing interface. Very cool. Yeah. And then as far as the transformation tools, um, I really love all the grid yeah. options. Like a lot of apps just give mm. you like just a grid and you have all these different grids. Yeah. Um, and, and like adjusting like a crop during a live running video is also pretty powerful. Um, anything mm-hmm. kind of worth pointing out about the transformation tools that you guys built? 
Yeah, so the transformation tool um, um, is both our most used tool in Darkroom. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> spends a lot of time with yeah. the transformation tool. Um, but it's... Um, I think I think the transformation tool is actually where we're going to be investing a lot of energy and effort in this coming year. Um, I think there's a lot of room for opportunities for improvement there um, in terms of perspective correction, especially. Mm-hmm. Right now, you have to really understand how horizontal and vertical perspective kind of like yeah. interplay with each other. Um, the other, so that's it. Would be cool if you could say, "I want to make this look like I'm standing above the image, or I'm standing directly in front, straight and, on, yeah, or head on, or something exactly. like that, Just like or at an angle." Human yeah, language. exactly. So. Yeah. Exactly that. So that's that's one area of we're going to be focusing on. Another area we're going to be focusing on is um, we, we we a lot of people use the transformation tool a lot because they want to get consistency um, mm-hmm. for their social media profile over time. For example, like uh, maybe you're shooting on an iPhone, which is a four by three, and you're posting to Instagram Stories, which is sixteen by nine, yeah. and you just like all you do is like um, you just want to be able to say like this is for Instagram stories like help me compose this for Instagram stories mm-hmm. so that you don't need to go into the transform tool in the first place yes um, uh, and so another thing we want to do is like help you make better cropping decisions um, and that's where AI might come into play yeah and so here's like a portrait of a person but they're not centered and like but they're not you're not you're clearly not trying to go on the rule of thirds <laughs> it's just a badly composed photo yeah so we can help help you do that um and so you're familiar, for example, with in-painting, where you can, like, mask an area and, like, fill it in with something. Yeah. There's also out-painting with machine learning now, where you can, like, recompose the photos to, like, get something centered. Oh, so, yeah. like, fill that in. So that would be... So that those are, like, rooms, um, uh, areas for improvement um, around both the workflow and around the image processing that we would want to do. Um, so it is... The, the, I think the, the, the thing that's notable about the, the Transform tool compared to other photo editing apps is we try to really, like, prioritize... Um, what are you trying to do in a mobile interface and how can we make it as smooth <laughs> as mm-hmm. possible? And so, for example, like we don't, we try not to overlay the cropped area with any Chrome. Yeah. Um, so you can see exactly what your crop region is. And it's amazing how many photos will add like handles and will add like other stuff right. to the corners. So like if you're trying to get like something cropped out of the corner, like you saw a bush or like a sidewalk yeah. or something, you don't want to overlap any UI. So there's a lot, there's like a hundred little details. Um, the transition in and out of crop, you know, like that, introduced so much headache for us to try to get that mm-hmm. uh, like if you crop the photo and then you go into the transform tool we uncrop it for you and we crop it back in and that transition is actually really helpful we think for understanding like where the photo is in yeah. relation to the overall composition um, and so we try to spend a lot more time on helping a mobile photographer understand where they're coming from and where they're going um, and, and, and making the tool easy to use um, is where we're going to be f- investing a lot of time and energy in the future. Very cool. And uh, presets. I know you guys are very close to releasing this big update where you can share presets with our people. Uh, something we just released. Just that. released it. Excellent. So it's out now if you're listening or watching. Uh, yeah. And then something I just want to mention, I just love how you can change the strength of a preset. So you don't have to go all in yeah. on a preset. You can just subtly tweak it. Um, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. I also love that when you hit a preset, you can see what was adjusted to make that. So um just general thoughts on presets and like where they're best used. And like, I know there's like some presets are designed to make emulate the look of a certain camera and, and film and all that. So there's, there's two kind of like, historically there've been two kinds of presets. There's been uh, what, what are called filters, like in Instagram mm-hmm. where it's a lookup table. You just like Visco, like uh, Instagram. Those are lots. Those are just somebody designed a lot and they sent it to you, tap it and you're kind of good to go. Yeah. Um, and the problem is typically a, a filter, especially one that's like really exciting and like really impressive will do a lot of transformations, but then you'd need to fine tune that preset for each photo. And so yeah. that's where like the LUT based approach kind of traditionally has failed. Um, then you have the Lightroom style and Darkroom style presets, which are collections of adjustments. And so kind of what we try to do in Darkroom is we try to give you the tools that those other companies use to generate their lookup tables. <laughs> so rather than just sending you LUTs, we send you adjustments, JSON, that like was used to make that preset, which allows you to then go learn how it was made and also modify and manipulate it to make it your own and to make it fit your photo aesthetic properly. Um, the thing that I think is a little bit unimportant is is important to know and unclear to people unless they really pay attention is that there are actually two kinds of adjustments you can make in Darkroom. Mm-hmm. There's corrective adjustments and then there's stylistic adjustments. Yeah. And corrective adjustments is if you take a photo and it's underexposed, you would change the exposure to make it look well exposed. Right. Now, 
Imagine you didn't do that. You just went and you applied preset, 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 preset. That photo is going to look underexposed in every preset you apply. Because you didn't change. If the photo is really flat, yeah. Yeah, right. then it's going to be flat for every <laughs> preset. Um, so typically, presets are designed for a well-exposed photo. Yeah. And so what do you do if you have a badly exposed photo and you want to like apply presets? So what we do is we actually separate out the sliders that are used for correcting for exposure. So that's exposure, brightness, contrast, whites, blacks, highlights, shadows. And if you modify those yourself... When you go from preset to preset, we don't overwrite them. Oh, that's, and so we take it for, as a signal from the photographer when you increase exposure to plus 0.5. Mm-hmm. We take it as a signal from you that this photo is underexposed by half a stop. And so every preset should not modify your adjustment. Yeah. So we give priority to the photographer. And so what we, what we recommend for people to do is to, before you start going through presets, if you open a photo, if it looks great, jump into presets. Yeah. But if the photo looks flat or if the photo looks underexposed or too dark or like the thing, the, the main focal area of the photo is too dark, brighten it up with shadows, then go apply presets and we'll make sure that the structure of the, your photo is maintained as you apply presets. So that's some of like the nuance of behavior that I think is important to know as a photographer who takes mobile photography seriously, but that's not uh, apparent just as you navigate through the app. Yeah. So um, explain the process a bit on the creating your own presets, naming those and sharing those. Like if I want to create a preset of, you know, this certain forest I walk every day for my forest walk and I want a preset of just that place where I photograph, how do I do that? Yeah, so uh, what I would recommend is you start out by thinking about like the mood. Yeah, uh, start out with like a like a mood intention, right? If you mm-hmm. want, if you if it's a if you live in England or in San Francisco and your morning walks include a lot of fog, it's going to be by nature a moody preset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're in, in if you're in Los Angeles and it's bright and sunny all the time, like it's going to be a different preset. So yeah. think of what mood you're going to go the, for. They, uh, um, time of day too. Yeah. Time of day, yep. yeah. Um, and uh, so start with that, like, intentionality, right? Like, is the thing that I've seen some people do is they just start moving sliders around and, like, hope they, like, dumb luck their way into a look that looks cool, yeah. which can work. And we try to make Darkroom, like, uh, you, we, we, wanna, we, we try to make people's experiences into, uh, in Darkroom where you fall into a pit of success, right? Like, yeah, you're you, kind of you exploring just, like, your things around. Yeah, what is this? Too? Yeah, and it, should, like it should look good. You should f- stumble into success. Yeah. Um, but um, if you're designing presets with the intentionality that you're describing, I would say start with the mood and then uh, try to think of um, what you want to do with exposure for this photo. Mm-hmm. So I just mentioned I don't want you to touch the sliders for brightness, <laughs> contrast, and saturation because those might be overridden by the photographer. Yeah. But all those sliders, you can adjust them in curves. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you want your photo to be brighter, create a bow right mm-hmm. in your curve and that will give you brightness that won't be overridden by a user okay if a photo is underexposed yeah. if you want contrast create an s curve in in the curves don't mm-hmm. increase the contrast slider um then so once you've once you've gotten the exposure of that photo right you know you might want to fade out the blacks you want to fade out the highlights do that first yeah because that's going to be the biggest visual impact of your preset yeah then what you would do is you would go into the color channels, the red, green, and blue. Yeah. And that's when you start manipulating the colors and the tonality. So mm-hmm. if you want to go for like a really warm, deserty vibe, you might want to like reduce uh, blue so that you get a yellower image. If um, if it's really moody, you might want to go for like a red aesthetic. Uh, you might want to like change the tones for the highlights or for the shadows. If you want to go for something cinematic, you might want the shadows to be more teal and your highlights uh, to be more orange, right? Yeah. And so that's where you add tonality. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the color tool, and that's where you start shifting colors around and manipulating it. And that's where you have to be careful because from photo to photo, you need to like when you start working on color adjustment, you need to have a collection of photos that cover every color range because you need to understand bright yellows, dark yellows, like dark greens. You don't you don't have to do this systematically, right? Like, (laughs) but just do a spot check because sometimes you might be surprised what one preset does for one photo and what it does to another photo. Yeah, I found that when copy adjustments, like, ooh, this does not work here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's the that's the that's the kind of process for making presets that we would recommend. Mm-hmm. And then um, the 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 last little tip is, it's really hard to make one preset that works for every photo. You yeah. can do it. We do it. Our bundled presets are intended to be generic, mm-hmm. but it puts limitations on how far you can push a look. So, for example, skin tones for all races kind of fall within the orange spectrum. Right, and it's just like your luminance is different. Yeah. When you talk about like HSL, if you move people's skin tones too far to green, they look like they're about to throw up. <laughs> yeah. And if you move people's skin tones too far to red, they look like they're sick and they're like have to have fever. Yeah. Um, and so you need to be like really careful about how you shift to oranges and yellows. But 
if you have like a, a desert scene or if you have a nature mm-hmm. scene, it's really beautiful to like move those oranges all the way it to really like red or green, to yellow, right? Like green pop, yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. And so like that might look terrible for a portrait. <laughs> and so what I would what I would suggest is if you're making a preset, think about what you're going to be using it on, yeah. And like have some naming system, like have like an L for landscape, P for portrait. Mm-hmm. Um, HC for high contrast, LC for low contrast. So come up with some kind of naming scheme that works for you. Um, and what, you know, we'll do 100 to 400 sometimes where the lower the number, the more subtle it is, the higher the number, the more intense the effect yeah. is. Um, and have fun, have fun with it. You know, like I'm, I'm giving you all the tips. Yeah. You don't have to use all of them. Yeah. Don't like think it's complicated. We try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, but if you really want to have like a, a set of photos that live next to each other in your filter to in a preset tool and you want, um, it, it, it helps to kind of think about how it's going to be used and, and for what context. And as far as sharing, um, is that person the person or is there a community set up? Do you plan on adding kind of like a community preset thing within the app? Like if I'm visiting New Zealand, I'd love if someone made a uh, Middle Earth Peter Jackson uh, <laughs> preset for me to use when I'm there. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are going to be investing in discovery for presets. So right now, uh, the way is designed for one-to-one mm-hmm. sharing where, um, you, you know, if you apply a preset, you can tap on it again to see its options. You can tap on share and we'll generate sample images and upload the sample images and the, uh, adjustments to, uh, the cloud and then give you a link and you can share that link with whoever you want. And like the way we designed it so far is if I want to share a preset with you, I can just do that by sending you a message with that link. Um, we wanted to see how the community adopted it and how the community kind of like created presets and like where they wanted to take it um, uh, before we really start investing in uh, discovery tools. But I mean, it's been amazing. I don't know if you've been following on Twitter. Yeah. If you just actually search on Twitter for a darkroom preset, you'll see all the oh, very cool. the, all, all the ones that are shared, which is really, really fun to see. Um, so we're working on a, uh, a way for you to discover those in the app, promote them in the app, um, and just, like encourage discovery. Um, so that's, that's coming next year. Awesome. And then I, got, I have two final questions as we wrap up here. Yep. Um, smart albums, frustratingly, are not on photos on iOS, just on the Mac. Is that something mm-hmm. that is possible for Darkroom to, to fill that hole? Um, that is something that I've been wanting since we started working on yeah. Darkroom and has been frustratingly out of reach until recently, so okay. until the iOS 16. So in iOS 15 and iOS 16, Apple introduced a bunch of new APIs that enabled a bunch of new features for Darkroom. Of course, it, they're all secret, so we can't have started working on them in time for <laughs> right. iOS 15's release. So like we haven't gone around to it yet, but um, what you need... To so here's what you kind of need to know. I'll give you like a slightly detailed answer. Cut me off yeah, yeah. if it's too much technical information. But iCloud Photo Library is a big database. You might have seventy thousand photos in it. When you open a, a photo at like Darkroom, we have to fetch all the photos from yeah. Darkroom from the Photos app, which can be really slow. Uh, some apps do this badly and can take like seconds for it to populate. Yeah. So we try to do it as efficiently as possible, so it's fast. But that limits our insight into what's happening in your library. Mm-hmm. Moreover, you can close Darkroom delete half your library and then you open it and darkroom is going to be out of sync if we do stuff yes um, um out of sync of iCloud photo library yep. and so we have to be really careful in the latest version of iOS they've added APIs for us to kind of build our own complete insight of your database mm-hmm. and catch it up to any changes that might have happened outside of darkroom which is a requirement for us to build indexing smart albums filtering yeah. all the stuff that you want to see but that doesn't exist is now possible we just have to finish everything we were working mm-hmm. on and then start working on this because now it's possible. That's really cool. Um, same sense. with like edit syncing. So if you have, if you make an edit on your phone, we don't currently sync it to your other devices because each asset on each device is unique and we don't know that these are the same asset until iOS 15. Yeah. And so now we can do it. So we're going to start working on it. But um, yes, those are frustrating shortcomings for like an asset management system. Um, and we try to cover up for that as much as possible. Yeah. Um, but we... Um, there's some things that we're fundamentally constrained by, just not anymore. No, that, that, that's super exciting because that's been like <laughs> yeah. one big frustration because uh, like I, I kind of want just a smart album to find all the camera images that don't have a, a lens metadata because that tells me it's probably something I saved from Safari. just want to delete that from my library. <laughs> um, so stuff like <laughs> yeah, that would exactly. be so nice. I guess even search exactly. with that. Um, uh, yep. So final question, uh, iPad related. I. I'm very impressed with what you guys have done here. Like you guys really take advantage of the platform. Like 
you mm-hmm. can open an image in a new space. And if you're in stage manager, that'll open a brand new window. So you can open up a bunch of windows that way. Um, and then I also, so just general thoughts on the iPad version versus developing for iPhone. And then also um, Apple Pencil. And uh, this is probably very soon to ask, but this hover state in the, the M2 iPad Pros, any thoughts in how that might uh, potentially influence future versions of Darkroom with uh, Apple Pencil integrations? Yeah. Uh, the Pencil one is going to be easier to answer, so let me just talk yeah. about that quickly, and then I'll talk about how we think about the iPad. Um, the Apple Pencil is, uh, yeah, the hover state is super cool, right? Like, that's one of the issues um, with the Apple Pencil is you don't know what's going to happen yes. when you tap on it. So there's like kind of like this fear of putting mm-hmm. pen to display. And so we're... Uh, we're actually starting to integrate the pencil more into Darkroom um, in for upcoming releases. Mm-hmm. Um, so very, very exciting to be able to like um, see that being invested in more and more because I think that's the magic of the iPad. Yeah. Like when you when you pull up the pencil, especially in the context of photo editing, right? Totally. Like you want to be able to like brush, point, like select stuff like that. Yeah. Like magic. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's that's a big area of investment for us. Um, Super exciting. Um, it's also nice just to see Apple continuing to em- embrace it yeah. and invest in it. Sometimes you know, can kind of like get hit the writings on the wall for something <laughs> yes. that Apple does. It's like, oh, they yeah, forget this about been it in a long yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's nice to see that this is a focus for them. Um, uh, when it comes to how we think about the iPad, one of the things that we strive to do, and one of the reasons why I think we won an Apple Design Award, is because we try to be as um, good platform citizens as we can be. Uh, we think it's, that's what makes us mobile first. That's what makes us optimize for a mobile ex- uh, inter- um, environment. Um, and we think it's really silly that some apps kind of treat their iPad and iPhone as just kind of... And I think it like is indicative of where you're coming from, right? Like if you're making all your money on the desktop and these are just like um, portals into your cloud or into your desktop client, it's going to be different than if the if you're going from the iPhone and expanding into the Mac, right? Like yeah. the, the directionality there really matters and influences what the product looks like. Um, and, uh, and so like, I appreciate you noticing that because we spent a lot of time working yes. on that. Um, and that's very intentional. Like that's not accidental. Like we want Darkroom to take full advantage of everything that iPadOS can do. Um, and that's and what... the layout is very different from iPhone. Like it's just, it feels like a draft very different app and it, and it should. But yeah. if you resize it, to a narrow window, yes. it'll adopt the iPhone, iPhone interface. Mm-hmm. So it's fully, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's fully, fully responsive. And that's because it's the same app using the same code and it's the same components. Yeah. Like they're just being laid out differently, but they're being laid out radically differently. Yes. <laughs> um, and, um, and so we take, we take a lot of pride in that and we, that like, that may, that remains a focus on us. So where we, uh, this goes back to my point yes, uh, earlier about focusing on the Mac. What's been happening with the kind of convergence of iPad and Mac mm-hmm. um, is, you know, things like keyboard navigation is powerful in Darkroom, but there's like a couple of other steps we can take. And and unfortunately, what's been happening is like, you know, Catal- Big Sur was the first Mac version that had Catalyst and then Monterey and now Ventura and each iteration makes big differences to how keyboard support works Yeah, because they're improving and iterating on it. And so we're, we're focusing on getting all our infrastructure and platforms um, update it because you know the iPad app is now built in 2018 and like the right way to build an app in 2018 isn't the right way to build an app in 2022 mm-hmm. and 2023 um, and so we're we're working on updating uh, our infrastructure to take full advantage of the latest keyboard uh, cursor um, uh, now like window resizing making that super smooth yeah. um, so that's that's where our area of focus is yeah. and that's where you're going to see the biggest improvements in dark Excellent. yeah the cursor you can do so much with, with transforming I can I mean, imagine like it's super cool yeah I can imagine yeah. it like locking onto a slider so you're not worried about am i still mm-hmm. on the yeah so that, that'll be nice and we spent like you know like uh, any person who's done mobile photography and used a mobile photography tool on iphone knows that like sometimes you lift your finger and it shifts the slider by like one or two percent and it's super frustrating yeah so we spend a lot of time on like helping you get back to zero confidently helping you like be confident with your finger yeah. and like mouse input um and that comes into play with the cursor like, yeah one thing like, ties in natu- yeah naturally. uh ferrite does this thing where you hold down i think an option or shift and it transforms it to the cursor being a totally different thing like it's uh selects audio versus the standard pointer i'm curious like using like modifier keys if you hold down like option while you're sliding if it like slow de- slow down the slide to make it more granular that that could be something yeah we've been thinking about that actually um we've been tr- we've been playing around with adopting what like ios 
used to do, but I think still does, where the distance from the knob yeah. changes how responsive it is. So you can like start dragging, but move your finger up or down to like make it more finely responsive. Yeah. So you're moving like half points. Uh, so we're we're playing around with ideas like that. The main the, the main challenge there is discoverability. Right. And so like if something is worth if something is worth doing is because it's useful, and if it's useful, you want to make sure it's discoverable. Um, and so that's the that's what we play around with. One thing that we spend a lot of time on is try to understand intent from user actions. And mm-hmm. so like we try to make the app really really simple to do. But if we're getting like feedback and intention intent intentful actions from the photographer just like oh i want to take this further than you're letting me where yeah. like we try to think of ways to like allow you to do that yeah well there are so many more things i'd want to dive into i'm <laughs> so impressed with with your app uh like if you guys haven't downloaded this app it's uh, free to download and then there's free trial and then you get started or you can just pay the, the lump sum to have a lifetime subscription which i love um yeah, and, and I love that there's like watermarks you can throw in your exports. Like there's every mm-hmm. aspect of this app is just very well thought out. So thank you for creating. Thank this. you. Appreciate awesome that. App. Thank you so much, Tim. Appreciate it. And thank you for the conversation. Where can people find more information about Darkroom? What I suggest is people follow us on Twitter. That's where like we're most active in terms of engaging with the community. There's also the subreddit Darkroom app. Um, the Twitter is uh, use Darkroom. And um, on our website is like the most in-depth information about all the updates we have, all the little bug fixes and everything that goes into them. Um, so yeah, definitely go to dark, darkroom.co to, for the latest inf- information. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, much for your time today. It's been just a great chat. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was my interview with Maj all about Darkroom. My thanks to him for his time recording and my thanks to you for your time and attention tuning in. Learn more about Darkroom at www.darkroom.co. You can support the podcast over at patreon.com slash epicpros or by subscribing in Apple Podcasts. With that, I'll talk to everyone again real soon.